This is Thinking About OBGYN with your hosts, Antonia Roberts and Howard Harrell. Antonia. Howard. What are we thinking about on today's episode? Well, we're going to talk about a relatively new device for postpartum hemorrhage and how we should decide about using it. And then we're going to talk about an interesting New York Times piece that discusses the high rates of false positives in cell-free DNA testing. All right. Well, let's do it. All right. Well, a couple of episodes ago, we talked about how OBGYNs tend to adopt new technologies and guidelines and things into practice. And we briefly hit on a lot of things that I think most people agree today, at least, were brought into our practices in perhaps a problematic way, meaning things like vaginal lasers and the mesh kits for prolapse. And perhaps looking back, it's easy to see that these things lack evidence and that they were just sort of promoted by industry without receiving proper due diligence on our part. But the question has come up, what about now? What about some new and emerging technologies or products that are being introduced to the market today? And how do we decide whether to use it or to pass on it? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I think it's easy to fall into the trap of other folks make mistakes that I don't make. We all do that, right? Boy, those docs 20 years ago did not consider the evidence about mesh kits. But luckily, I have a subscription to the Green Journal and I'm not <laughs> dumb. So I think it's easy to fall into those traps. And folks who would have us use some of these products rely on our biases and, and what's called the optimism bias and things like that to sometimes mislead us. But I don't think that we've, that everything we discussed, I don't think that people would agree about everything. We, you mentioned vaginal lasers and mesh, which the mesh, the FDA taking the action, although I suspect we could still find ardent proponents. And of course, the vaginal lasers are still out there being used. But even beyond that, I'd say the majority of our listeners believe that robotic hysterectomy for benign gynecology is a good thing. So they're not going to put that anywhere near the same category as say something like a mesh kit. And, and it, of course, it doesn't deserve to be in that same category. At least when it comes to robotic hysterectomy, at least that's not harming women to the degree that mesh kits were harming women. But I do think that's where the differences end. It's just a spectrum. Otherwise, they're both essentially unproven technologies marketed to doctors and hospitals, adopted out of perverse incentives, including greed or maybe just novelty, fallacy or things like that. And more importantly, they are inferior to the best practice, the gold standard practice, both in terms of patient outcomes and in terms of cost. It just happens to be that robotic robotic hysterectomy is a whole lot safer and a whole or a whole lot less harmful, if you will, than, say, a vaginal mesh kit. But it's not as safe as vaginal hysterectomy, and it's associated with poor patient outcomes, both in benign gynecology and in, in things like even radical hysterectomy for malignancy compared to traditional abdominal radical hysterectomy, which we talked about that last year, too. But industry will continue to fund studies. They'll find a way, hoping for some evidence that what I just said will be shown to be untrue in the future, or at least has some evidence to argue the point. In fact, there's a new study that's just being started in a couple of universities in the United States that seeks to redo this comparison of open radical hysterectomy for some cervical cancers versus robotic hysterectomy, robotic radical hysterectomy. And they, the authors now have the benefit, they've even stated publicly, well, we looked at the enrollment criteria of the definitive study that we talked about last year, and we're going to design ours a little bit different, right, so that we can maybe find a 
a different outcome. So this dance back and forth continues. But right now, I can say, based upon where we're at in the current evidence, that the robot should not be used for those radical hysterectomy surgeries or for most benign hysterectomies. And if you just continue to do so on the hope that some future industry-sponsored study will show some benefit, that's wrong. We're not there. The evidence isn't there yet. Okay, well, let's see if we can go through an example of a new product that's being marketed or one or two of those types of products and think about how this should work. In other words, what's the process and the due diligence for review before we adopt a new technology or a new medic- medicine or something into practice? So as an example, I am picking the Jada postpartum hemorrhage device because I've gotten to use that recently. So for anyone who hasn't heard of this, it's an intrauterine vacuum-induced hemorrhage control device. So you put this thing inside the uterus. It's It kind of expands. You can collapse it to insert it, and then it's supposed to expand out and hold its shape kind of like an IUD would. So you put it inside the uterus, and it has a little external balloon to make a seal with the cervix. So that's supposed to hold it in place. And then you connect it to negative pressure. And that's supposed to, instead of what you might fear is just sucking the blood out of the body, it doesn't actually do that in most cases. It just creates a negative pressure that forces the uterine walls to collapse. And then the idea is that forces it to contract down and occludes the spiral arteries and and that would control bleeding. I think this device is about $800 and, and it's being marketed now. And like I said, I recently used one. I wasn't super impressed. Our issue, I can mention, I can talk about it a little bit later, but it ended up just, it didn't stay in place. And then the bleeding was just controlled with uterotonics anyway. But regardless, I have a feeling that this will be commonplace pretty soon around the U.S., much like the Bakri balloon is now. So what would your process be for deciding whether or not you would try this product in your hospital? Yeah, okay, great. This is a great example that you and I already talked about some. And and I do think it's interesting, like, do we need a new product for control of postpartum hemorrhage? When we had endometrial ablation devices come to market, and then we ended up with several different ones, did we need new and different ones? What was their motivation for that? So, I mean, is is postpartum hemorrhage a problem? Yeah. Should we always be looking to expand our knowledge and our treatment options and things like that? Yes. Can we definitively treat postpartum hemorrhage in the United States of America in a hospital? Absolutely. And like for endometrial ablation devices or for this, I guess what I was going to point out is that folks are incentivized to find new and novel ways of doing things for patent reasons. So we had like half a dozen different underlying technologies used in endometrial ablation devices in the mid 2000s because each company was looking for this expanding niche market and they wanted a unique patentable product. And in postpartum hemorrhage, same thing. We Bakri balloon, and there's also the little butterfly device that's meant to help with bimanual massage. And there's lots of little patentable things out there. And everybody's looking for something in this marketplace. So we have to separate out the science from seeking to have a differentiable, patentable product in a marketplace and understand that those two things are sometimes at odds for each other. But 
This is a good example. So what's our due diligence? And then maybe we can generalize this for all new innovations if we think about this one. So the first thing I always do is try to get some background on the product and its development. And so this is a product that was developed by Alidia Health. And this is a Silicon Valley startup that was founded by a then 21-year-old lady in 2011. She got $10 million in her initial round of venture capital funding. And like most successful venture capital startups, the goal was to get a patent of something, get FDA approval for something, and then sell to a bigger company. And so, in fact, last year they were sold to Merck. And I think that's obviously now with FDA approval and Merck in charge, why you're going to see this so heavily promoted and marketed. So the founder, a then 21-year-old founder, had worked on the problem as a project in college as part of a competition. And, and that's okay. I'm not knocking her at all. A lot of great things have come out of California colleges, Stanford's, etc., where they fund competitive uh, prizes and things like that to solve problems. Some of the best ideas, in fact, in all areas of technology come from outsiders and folks who haven't thought about problems in the way that, you know, you and I are locked into thinking about them. But at the same time, let's be honest, I'm right to be a little skeptical of an idea to treat postpartum hemorrhage that came from a young lady who has never taken care of a patient with postpartum hemorrhage and has no experience with the problem, but has just read on an internet site that thousands of women die of postpartum hemorrhage and around the world. So it's a different starting point. Now, nevertheless, the idea of using the vacuum was born as something different than what had been tried. This is like in counter to the Bakri balloon. This the Bakri balloon expands and puts pressure, which is fundamentally anti-physiologic. We want the uterus to contract down around those vessels, not just tamponade them off. So I applaud the idea. And then once this product was developed, well, it was first tested on a handful of women in a couple of third world countries. In, in a small group of women in Africa, there were at least two deaths. But the company says that these ladies died because blood products weren't available. They say that the device got the hemorrhage under control, but that they died because they needed a transfusion. So I'm not sure that I like that bit of doublespeak there. If this was going to be a product that was going to save lives in Africa, then obviously it needs to be something that prevents and, and obviates the need for transfusion in resource-poor areas where transfusion is not available. So I don't really like the rationalization of this. But but the company had Mary D'Alton, very well-known maternal fetal medicine physician in at the time in California, now she, I believe she's since moved on now to be a chair at Columbia or department head at Columbia. She's at Columbia now. They designed a study to look at the safety and efficacy of this device in the United States. Yeah, that study I think was published in 2020 in the Green Journal in November. And I remember this. So they recruited women at 12 different hospitals and ultimately had 107 women recruited and all but one of them had the device used. They reported that a hundred of the women had control of their bleeding within three minutes of being connected to the device. And so by control of bleeding, what they meant was that they did not require additional procedures for bleeding control. So they didn't require a bakri or packing or embolization or any kind of surgery. 35 of the women received a blood transfusion and five of them required more than four units of blood. Eight of the women had various adverse events related to the device. So in theory, the women underwent some amount 
of uterine massage and received uterotonics prior to getting this device, you would think logically. So anyway, we have a study that shows that it's relatively safe and effective. Well, I'd uh, say not really. I yeah. Mean, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think that's what this necessarily shows. That's what the author said. I mean, what this really is a case series, right? I mean, Dr. DeAlton herself pointed out in a news media blurb about this, that many physicians will likely criticize this publication because it doesn't have a control arm. So there's also no consistent application about who received the device or what medications or pathway they went through, what they failed or how failure was determined in terms of who would need the device. In fact, they spent a whole column of text in this paper making a sort of rationalization for why many of the women who received the intervention didn't even meet the criteria for postpartum hemorrhage in terms of objective blood loss. And we've talked about that. In fairness, we define it now as a thousand mLs since 2016, I think. In other words, when this study was done. But many people still consider 500. They used 500 in the paper, which made more women eligible. But most of the women had very marginal blood losses. And then there's this third of women who required a bunch of blood. So how many women really had a, a, a significant postpartum hemorrhage and went through multiple rounds of medicines if you didn't have many people even passing 1,000 milliliters of blood loss? It's, that's difficult. A third of the women in this paper had genital lacerations, including high lacerations that were bleeding. So we don't even know if acne was the cause of bleeding in those women. And I bet you a lot of those are the women who also needed transfusions. We don't know how this device compares to another device or another intervention like Bakri balloons or uterine packing or uterotonics massage because there is no comparator or control arm in the group. It would have been very easy, for example, to take women and randomize women to some pathway of treatment, like you fail three uterotonic drugs or something, so you get this device versus whatever your traditional protocol is that you would do if you didn't have this device, whatever that might be. Things like continued massage or secondary rounds of medications or Bakri balloons, B-Lynch sutures, uterine packing, whatever you might do. So that would have been the normal way you would design this study, but they didn't do that. And we know how tempting it might be for the investigators who were doing this to look for people to use a device on. They were recruiting, actively recruiting recruiting people to use a device on. So what was their threshold for using it? Well, we massaged her for five seconds and she's still bleeding. Get the thing. Let's do it. We don't know because there's no objective criteria. They consented 7,500, a little bit over 7,500 women for potential use of this device and then ended up using it 106 times. So that's 1.4% of their deliveries. Now, simply looking at the literature on postpartum hemorrhage will tell you that 1.4% of women, I mean, it may be that 1.4% of women don't even have postpartum hemorrhages, let alone 1.4% of women who have a baby certainly don't need advanced treatment for postpartum hemorrhages. I've delivered around 4,000 patients and I've never used a Bakri balloon. And I think I've used B. Lynch sutures maybe twice. And I've never had to do a cesarean hysterectomy for something that was just acne. Almost all of them are due for invasive placentas and things like that. So, so that's interesting to me. That just doesn't match with the literature or my own personal experience of how often I fail things like uterine massage and one or two or three uterotonic drugs. I, I can't remember failing those. So this is not a trial. It's an industry-funded case series. Yeah, I think my experience would fit their definition of successful control because then we didn't need to do any other procedures, but... But maybe your drugs just kicked in. Yeah. It takes a few minutes. Like, I think that's where people get confused. I had a hemorrhage uh, in the middle of the night earlier this week and ended up using two uterotonic drugs. Well, I had to massage her continuously by manual massage for seven or eight minutes. Why? Not because the drugs had failed, but because they hadn't had time to get in her body to work. 
So what often happens is we do a bunch of stuff, we're impatient, we don't do the thing that really stops bleeding, which is uterine massage, bimanual uterine massage, and then wait for the drugs to catch up. And then the last thing you did, we act like it worked. So, I mean, I personally believe the Bakri balloons are way overutilized in the same way. And we should point out that the study was funded by Olydia Health. The study was designed by them, and one of the authors is their employee. Of course, in the disclosures, it doesn't say that Dr. Dialton received any funding from Olydia Health personally, but she has likely received significant funding from Merck, which bought Olydia Health. So I guess point number one is before we use a new intervention, we need an interventional trial with a comparator arm where the new intervention is compared to the current standard. Yeah, exactly. And and I want to say I love Mary Dalton. So I have nothing bad to say about her. But this is just kind of the way things work. She has received funding from Merck, but that funding was to help pay, was educational grants to help pay for her work in the American College of Joanne's helping with these issues, right? So you can see, though, that even though I, I don't think she has a misintention in her mind or anything deliberate, she's genuinely looking and working on this problem. But you can see how tempting it is when you're working with industry to pay for educational initiatives and industry says, hey, since you're helping us out here, we're going to fund your desired educational programs and things like that. So some of the conflicts are more direct and some are not because of nefariousness or anything else. So I don't want anybody to think that I'm accusing Mary D. Alton of being nefarious in any way in this. But these conflicts of interest still exist and, and they're things that we should look for. And ultimately, of course, I don't know what anybody's motives or intentions are. I'm not God, but I don't think that Mary D. Alton has any bad intentions and that she's done great work in this area with money she got from Merck. So both things can be true. But um, yeah, but I think that you're right. We need a trial, an interventional trial with a comparator arm where the new interventions compared to what our current therapy is. And I would say that usually we need two studies. I mean, not always. It, you could have one really fantastic study with an obvious magnet, a large magnitude intervention effect and things like that, where you're like, this is amazing. Let's do it. But usually you need more than one. You need replication. And, and if the only study is industry funded, then that should really give us pause. The literature is clear that industry-funded studies are much more likely to fail replication than non-industry-funded studies, and they tend to exaggerate effect size by 50% or more. That, In other words, even when there is a benefit, the industry-funded studies always make it look better than the follow-up non-industry-funded studies. And so if you have a marginal effect, that can wash away completely in the follow-up studies. But as you said, this study, they say in the paper, right, was designed by the company that made the device after they do some kind of off-the-books experimentation overseas and third world countries where it's easier to do trials. And if you have a couple of people die, you can act like, yeah, okay, well, they, they didn't have transfusion equipment available, right? And then they come to the United States and what they learn from that gives them an opportunity to design a study protocol that's most favorable to find the effect that they would like to find. So it always is going to give me pause if if the study protocol was designed by the company or the study protocol did not choose to compare it to a standard therapy. If they could have designed a study that compared it to Bakri balloon or to some standard intervention and showed benefit, they would have done that because they'd be selling like hotcakes. They'd put Bakri out of business, for example, but they didn't do that. And my guess is because they knew that their intervention wouldn't look really any better compared to standard therapy. And the burden of proof is on them. They're the ones trying to sell an $800 device and encourage overutilization for women with 
hemorrhages under a thousand mLs or insignificant, less significant hemorrhages. And we're not obligated to use their product or even even give them the time of day. <laughs> They're the ones that are obligated to show with high quality replicable evidence that it works and it's cost effective and can save lives. Yeah. And stop. Yeah. We're, we don't work for them. Yeah, exactly. And, and this whole system of the way things are done is rife for corruption. So, I mean, many times doctors are asked to author studies with the promise that after the publications uh, produced and, and published, that then they'll be given a speaker bureau position. So at the time of publication, the author may not have received any compensation from the company at all. But after the publication, they'll be given some generous opportunities to receive several thousand dollars a pop to talk about the new drug or product or whatever at little dinners and things like that. One thing that I do a lot is go and Google the author or look on the open payment system after the publication, a year later, and see if the folks who said in the paper that they didn't receive funding now have received funding. So this is very common that we did not receive money from the company. And then two years later, you look them up on the CMS's open payment system, which records all the payments we receive from industry and by company and by doctor. And you find out that they've been doing $180,000 worth of speaker bureaus ever since their paper came out. So now that's not helpful for the current thing we're discussing because the payments for 2021 have not been uploaded yet. And that's what we're, that would be where we would find this. It'll be interesting to see how many of the various authors on that paper are now doing speaking jobs for Olivia Health. If you do a PubMed search for this device, the only article you find is from last year in the Expert Review of Medical Devices Journal. And oddly enough, it's an article written by Dr. Mary Dialton. Yeah, and that's, again, that's just the way this works. You write one paper, and then you also author the systematic reviews or the meta-analyses or whatever, and you create a little nexus of secondary literature. But that article has been accessed thousands of times. It is what people typically find. And if you look at that particular journal, they advertise that they'll publish whatever you send them in three weeks for $7,000 cash to help you get a jump on your competitors, etc. Like this is not, let's not act like this is the New England Journal of Medicine or something. But we can start to see from this paper, the evolution of how funding works. So Kara Rood was the second author of the Green Journal paper. And in that Green Journal paper, she reported having received no money from Alidia Health directly, just that the hospital had received funding for the product, for the research project. That was in, that was published in November 2020. Now the actual paper was published electronically on the Green Journal's website on September 9th, 2020. And in this new paper that you mentioned from this pay for published journal, in that paper, Rude reports that she in fact did receive direct funding as a consultant to Olivia from October 2020 to March 2021. So you see that they didn't start paying her until one month after the Green Journal paper was published. And this is very common because they didn't want to put in the Green Journal paper that she had been a paid consultant to the company. But interesting funding doesn't always come, again, in the form of direct payments or anything like that. You can also just, it can come in the form of funding for your research, funding for your department or some educational grants, or just greasing the wheels of publications and research and things like that, which help our academic authors in their lust for publications and academic activity to help them with tenure and promotion. In any event, we should be leery of papers that are published by companies that say that their product is beneficial. Yeah. And as you said, in March 2021, Merck bought Olivia for $240 million. So the payoffs are enormous 
for these companies that score FDA approval. Yeah, not even FDA approval, just clearance, FDA clearance. It's not like that this isn't the products never raise to the level of like even drugs do. And that's a whole separate issue. But yeah, be clear about that. The FDA granted clearance to this product in August of 2020 because of that one study published in the Green Journal in September of that year. So that publication's value to that company, which the company, by the way, designed and paid for, was cashed out in the form of $240 million as soon as the data became available and the FDA moved on it. So let's not act like that there is not a significant potential for bias when authors of the paper are employees of the company. And that publication doesn't tell us that this is any better than standard therapy, but it does give the salespeople some great talking points, I'm sure. And I suppose we'll start to see talks given at meetings and various events around the country promoting this product by doctors who perhaps whose names appeared on that paper. Yeah, and that can be a sweet little gig. (laughs) I mean, I've been approached to design a study by uh, industry over a product with the promise of speaking gigs afterwards, I declined. They wanted to deal with a loss to follow-up product problem in the paper and just act like the, all the folks that they didn't find also had a good outcome. I've been asked to prescribe a particular drug that I had written about in a paper published just before it came out in exchange for speaking engagements. And then I was didn't prescribe the drug because it was too expensive. And then they never paid me to do a speaking engagement explicitly because I I was not prescribing the drug. The system's very corrupt, or at least has the potential to be very corrupt. Many of these academic speaking engagements are simply payback for using or prescribing a product. And for academic physicians, if you can make an extra fifty or $100,000 a year for presenting a 30, 45-minute slide deck a few times, along with a nice dinner and maybe travel somewhere, it's a nice little perquette, if you will. And you may even really believe in what you're saying and what you're selling. You don't have to be disingenuous to fall for this. And of course, who better to present the data or talk about the device or how to use something like this device than one of the authors of the study that led to its FDA clearance. So, of course, you're not going to think that's weird that a particular doctor who wrote the paper is giving a talk. That's what you would expect. So it all just kind of works out and people ignore this stuff. So for an $800 device, not that's necessarily the profit margin, but just using that number. So they would need to sell 300,000 of these in order to break even with what they paid for the company, the the 240 million sale. So if they use it in 1% of women giving birth in the United States, that would only be 34,000 women a year that that they're using it for. And the literature does not support that 1% of women need a device like this. So I guess that's why they're press release emphasized international sales. Yeah, in lucrative areas too, like Western Europe, etc. Mm-hmm. They're not looking to give these away. I mean, I'm, they may do it right, obviously, but this wasn't developed as a charitable thing for Sub-Saharan Africa, right? Yeah. So yeah, get ready for lots of product demonstrations, lots of lunches, funding of regional and national ACOG meetings, SMFM meetings, tons of reps who are happy to bring you and show you how to use these things, and then encouraging your unit to buy a dozen of them with expiration dates that sit on shelves and collect dust or get used inappropriately. So that's the way it works. And we keep repeating this over and over again. Okay. So what have we learned? Let's have a set of rules about adopting new devices or drugs. 
Well, I think there's really just one rule. It's the one you've already said, like don't use a new device or a drug or whatever unless prospective randomized trials, at least two or at least one not funded by industry and of overwhelming quality, shows that it the intervention is superior to whatever our current standard or gold standard therapy is. And superior in some meaningful way, especially if a new intervention is significantly more expensive than the old one. It needs to be cost effective. My, my job is not to help Silicon Valley startups make money. And the trial of Elizabeth Holmes and, and all that kind of stuff. Also, a 21-year-old who started a Silicon Valley fund up. Like, come on, people. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. And, and Theranos is an excellent example of how even big corporations bought onto nonsense. Most FDA clearance trials for devices or FDA approval trials for medications don't have a comparator arm. They're compared to nothing in the case of medical clearance or they're cared to or they're compared to placebo in the case of medications. But that doesn't tell us if they're better than what we already have. Yeah. And I will say, though, that when you've got a good product, you've got a new, really best-in-class product, you do the comparative trials. You want to walk in and say, our heart disease medicine compared to the old standard heart disease medicine is shown to reduce mortality and everyone should start using it. And then the American Heart Association adopts it as a guideline. But when you don't have that, you don't do comparator trials. So so let's think about things we talked about before and, and put that point you just made specifically in the highlight here. What, what does this look like? Okay, what are comparative trials of robotic hysterectomy for benign disease versus vaginal hysterectomy for benign disease? What do they show? Vaginal hysterectomy is better in all regards. How about liposomal bupivacaine versus regular bupivacaine for tap blocks and things like that? Regular bupivacaine is better in all regards, or at least equal. How about laser vaginal rejuvenation versus estrogen cream? Estrogen wins and is cheaper. All, of course, the winner here is also cheaper in each example. How about Cervidil for induction of labor versus mesoprostol or even just a mechanical balloon? The mesoprostol or the balloon wins and is dramatically cheaper. How about the double balloon product versus just a regular old Foley catheter with a larger you know, balloon for induction of labor? The regular old Foley catheter wins and is dramatically cheaper. Or even how about just these examples compared to placebo? McKenna versus placebo, there's no difference. First trimester progesterone for miscarriage versus placebo, there's no difference. Tocolytics versus placebo, no difference. And there's probably others I'm not even thinking of. Yeah. And then think back on the mistakes we've made in the past. Where were the vaginal mesh kit studies that showed that it was both superior to natural tissue repairs and safer? There weren't any. There never were any, etc. So endometrial ablation devices, they all come out with just a, a safety profile. The FDA requires them to prove that they're safe, but not efficacious or not compared to something else. So that's what we really need. We need comparator trials that show that these things are effective. I'll put a link to a ProPublica investigation from, I think it's actually from like five years ago now, that is called "What When Evidence Says No, But Doctors Say Yes. It's a wonderful read, and I think folks will find that interesting. And I'll also put an article from last year that was on Medscape that was a sort of an investigative piece that talked about how device makers have funneled literally billions of dollars to surgeons who use their products, meaning orthopedic surgeons using whatever new hip thing that comes out or new heart valves or things like that, and how that system kind of rewards doctors for using these very expensive devices or implants. And and that's what we're really talking about here. How do we grease the system to get some new product out on the market that may not be worthwhile? 
Okay, well, speaking of how industry influences our practice patterns, let's also briefly just talk about the cell-free DNA testing in pregnancy, because there's an interesting report making the rounds on social media. Okay, well, let's talk about this new report that was published last month in New York Times, and we can put a link to that article. But it was called, When They Warn of Rare Disorders, These Prenatal Tests Are Usually Wrong. So that was kind of attention grabbing. It was an investigative article that was part of a bigger exploration that included other issues like surprise medical bills and unexpected costs in healthcare. But this article tells the story of patients who were told their child might have a serious chromosomal or genetic problem, but in the end did not. And it just talks about the costs and angst that they suffered as a consequence of these false positive tests. And it concluded that for every 100 positive test results that come back, 85 of them are false positives. Yeah, or false discoveries to be more technically accurate, I guess. But yeah, I love this article. And it's the sort of thing that I've been talking about and writing about for a long time and a big theme in my new book. About a decade ago, we started seeing the widespread use of cell-free DNA testing for Down syndrome. And this is what people call non-invasive prenatal screening or sometimes inappropriately non-invasive prenatal testing. And this can be expanded to other chromosomal problems or even single gene mutations and things like that. So we discussed these sorts of tests last season when we discussed antenatal testing. Well, last year, two seasons ago. When these tests came out, they were marketed as very accurate and more than 99% sensitive and specific for things like Down syndrome. And they use DNA technology. And anyone, of course, who's watched CSI knows that DNA is always right, right? But the truth is obviously much, much more complicated. And a decade ago, I became interested in these topics primarily because of this testing technology and how commonly doctors were misinterpreting the results of these tests that leads to sometimes folks aborting a normal pregnancy or even to significant sort of psychological and mental harm to patients who have unnecessary concern and worry for no reason. And again, like we discussed in that episode about antenatal testing, doctors adopted these tests in their office without really understanding how they work or what the results mean. And only rarely, of course, do I think patients are counseled appropriately about these tests. This is another example of how industry kind of dictates what we do rather than science. They just come and say, this test is super accurate. It's super wonderful. Oh, technology. And it gets much worse than just doctors listening to the product reps telling them how great the test is. Some of the companies actually send the doctor a check for every test that they order through their company. And they call it a reimbursement for the doctor who served as a genetic counselor for the test. I did one of these tests one time, and it was a company whose test was for, they offered a test for crew to And I had a patient who had a previous pregnancy affected for that. So she wanted that testing after appropriate genetic counseling. And unbeknownst to me, a month or so later, I got a check in the mail. I didn't know I was a genetics counselor for this company. And I've never used that company since then because I think that is highly unethical. In any event, I would call that a bribe, right? But as we discussed last year, the physician has a great burden to counsel patients about what these tests mean and what their value is before ordering them. But most of the time, these tests are just kind of ordered with almost no conversation. Just in many cases, just so the patient can find out the gender of the baby because they saw the test advertised for that in a magazine. And you know what? Find out the gender three or four weeks earlier earlier than they could with ultrasound. So these tests are fraught with different problems anyway that we talked about last year some. When And when we talked about it 
I, if I, I should remember this, but we were talking about how the cell-free DNA is superior to the serum analyte screening. Yeah, it absolutely is. No yeah. doubt about it. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that most patients need that testing. That's the first thing is, do you want or need that testing? And then secondly, how do you interpret a result that comes back when it is positive. And so that's where a decade ago we were making so many missteps is the test comes back and it says positive for Down syndrome. And we just assume that's the case. As I write about in my book and and elsewhere, and I've really done this in my over the last decade, I've asked, I mean, about a thousand people. I mean, everybody I meet in the medical, any student, fellow, resident, whoever, I will ask them this question. If you do a self-free DNA test on a patient for Down syndrome and it comes back positive and this test is 99.9% sensitive and 99.9% specific for Down syndrome and it comes back positive and you bring her into your office, you sit her on the couch, you say, I've got some bad news for you. This test came back positive and she says, how certain are you? What's your answer to that? No one gets that answer correctly. They all think that it's something like 99.9% because they think it's something to do with specificity or they don't really quite remember, but it's such a good test. There's no better test than that for any disease and it's positive. So, but of course, what we're really asking about is positive predictive value, which has the incidence of disease. And we'll talk about that for these diseases that they point out in this article too. So it is much better than quad screens and things like that. But then that's a secondary question of, do we need to do these tests? Is it important? to screen every single pregnancy for Crudichette or Down syndrome? What is the intention of the patient? Do they plan on what are our interventions available other than abortion? If you knew that the fetus had Down syndrome and you're not planning on aborting it, do we do something else antenatally that makes a significant difference? So typically there should be a conversation and that answer is going to be different for different people. I do a ton of these tests, right? I'm not saying I don't do them, but it is not a routine prenatal lab. It's not like your blood type where I need to know and I need to screen everybody because Rogam is available. I need to discuss with you what this test means, what a positive result would mean, how we would deal with that if it came back positive. And you need to be okay with that before we order the test. And anything short of that information is inappropriate. Yeah, I think the point that the New York Times article makes can be shocking in that, well, so I don't think I've ever had a a positive result from these tests. And I've ordered a lot of them because these are rare things that they're screening for. But even out of the positive tests, it's, it's easy to forget that many of those positives would not be true. So so anyway, a huge number of patients are receiving these tests. They're very expensive. And some of them probably would not have chosen them if they had been accurately, appropriately counseled about what they were and what they meant and what the alternatives are. And when cell-free DNA testing first came out, they they were commonly referred to as non-invasive prenatal test or NIPT, which is just so rolls off the tongue. And there was a movement to call them NIPS, N-I-P-S, non-invasive prenatal screening, to emphasize that these are merely screening tests. The definitive confirmatory test still usually involves direct sampling with either the chorionic villus or an amniocentesis. And I think in general, providers do understand that these cell-free DNA tests don't mean that the fetus has the given disease when it comes back positive, but overall, perhaps the high chance of false positives hasn't fully been communicated to the lay public 
Yeah. Yeah. And who are advertised to directly mostly about discovering the gender of the baby. I, I mean, I do see a lot of these tests ordered just as routine testing without any conversation whatsoever. It's just It's just a prenatal lab that we do now, right? If everyone in the practice is receiving a NIPS test as part of a routine obstetric panel, then you can know for sure that appropriate counseling is not taking place in that practice. Well, in this New York Times piece, they looked not just at Down syndrome and Edwards and Patel syndrome or sex chromosome disorders, which are commonly done with cell-free DNA testing, but they looked at some of the expanded testing that's now being offered through that same technology. So there's seven tests for rare disorders that are now available through some of those companies. These include DeGeorge syndrome, 1P36 deletion, the Credu shot, as you mentioned, Wolf-Hirshhorn syndrome, Prader-Willi and Angelman, and Langer, I think it's Gideon, and Jacobson syndromes. And the authors point out that the companies advertise these tests as being reliable, highly accurate, offering total confidence and peace of mind for patients. But then of course, they're telling stories where the exact opposite has happened. These Genetic diseases are relatively rare, with the most common one that I listed, DeGeorge syndrome, occurring 1 in 4,000 pregnancies, but the tests for that were wrong 81% of the time that it reported a positive result. And for something even more rare, like Prader-Willi, which is uh, 1 in 20,000 incidents, the test was wrong 93% of the time that a positive result was reported, so... So what's going on here? What's the underlying principle that the physicians aren't understanding? Well, I want to remind everybody that this is a baby-friendly podcast. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, no greater sound to an OBGYN's ears than a healthy crying baby. Yeah. But yeah, the biggest lesson, of course, is that just tests are not binary. They don't come back positive or negative. All tests have false positives and all have false negatives associated with them. We discussed that last year about how a test can be highly accurate, and that doesn't mean a thing. The companies use that term accuracy on purpose. So let me explain some of this using these examples that you gave. If Prader-Willi syndrome occurs, you said one in 20,000 pregnancies, and then I develop a test for that disease that never is successful at reporting a single case of Prader-Willi, then my test will be inaccurate only one time in 20,000, the one time that it occurs. It will have correctly identified the 19,999 women who do not have a child with Prader-Willi syndrome. So good job. And only messed up that one time when I missed the one child who did. So arithmetically, that means that my test will be 99.995% accurate, really accurate. Yet the test is completely worthless. It means nothing. So when companies use the word accuracy or they say it's accurate or highly accurate, they are intending to deceive you. There's a reason why they're using that term and not the correct terms. So just look for that. Now, you said advertise this as reliable. That's quotes, reliable. And in reference to tests, what reliability means is that a test performs the same way over time and in different circumstances. So as long as the test continues to never accurately identify a single child with Prader-Willi syndrome, then my test will also be high. Highly reliable and 99.995% accurate, yet it's completely clinically worthless. So again, these words don't mean anything, but they do imply something to patients and to providers who are marketed. It implies something that's just not true. Uh, yes, we need to know the positive and negative predictive value. 
Yeah, exactly. And so, again, I would encourage folks to listen to the episode we did last year about this where we discussed those things, but just a brief explanation of what the positive predictive value is. Now, this is a formula that's based upon Bayes' theorem, but for clinical tests, whether it's a CBC for anemia or a TSH for hypothyroidism or a self-free DNA test for Prader-Willi syndrome, this is the formula. The positive predictive value, which is the chance that the person actually has the disease after the test comes back positive, equals the pretest probability times the sensitivity, that's the numerator, and then on the bottom, the denominator is the pretest probability times the sensitivity, again, plus parentheses 1 minus pretest probability in parentheses times parentheses 1 minus the specificity. Now, don't worry about that. Don't try to write it down. Google it. You learned that in medical school, but I find that most people doesn't remember that they learned it in medical school, and they certainly don't really actively use it in medicine. But let me point out the important parts here. Three of the terms that have to be used in that equation are pretest probability. So even a test that is incredibly highly sensitive and highly specific will usually produce a false discovery when the disease we're testing for is a rare disease. So don't be deceived by tests that report very high sensitivities and specificities just by itself. You still have to consider the context in which it's used, meaning the pretest probability that the patient in front of you has the disease in question. Okay, and I'm sure you'll give us some actual examples. Let's So let's assume that a test is 99.9% sensitive and 99.9% specific for a given disease and it's also 90 over 99.9% accurate and highly reliable. Now, put those numbers in your calculator and give me some examples of the positive predictive value or the true report rate for a suspected disease with a range of prevalences of the disease. Yeah, and I you say put it in my calculator because I have a spreadsheet, right, where I can just pop these things in. Like, I don't know how to do this stuff without doing that, which has always been sort of a paradox to me that people are ordering these tests and don't know how to interpret them. But yeah, so... You just described, by the way, again, the best test in medicine. I mean, who could hope for something more than 99.9% sensitive, specific, accurate, reliable, etc.? This is the best test. And this isn't a fictional test that you've asked me to talk about. This is how well these tests work, the self-reading tests. They are the best test in medicine. So it can both be the best test in medicine and also require considerable restraint and counseling on how to use and interpret the test. But let me give you examples. So with the parameters that you've described, If a test comes back positive for a disease that 10%, your pretest probability is 10%, then then when it comes back positive, your patient has a 99.1% chance of having that disease. So whether that's for Down syndrome or Prader-Willi or thyroid disease, if you're looking at somebody and you think, ah, you have a 10% chance of, I think, of having that disease and do that test, they will have that disease 99.1% of the time. But let's drop that down. What if there's a 1% pretest probability? and the test comes back positive, they still have a 91% chance. Still high, the test still means a lot. Okay, but now we're getting into these rare diseases. So about what about Down syndrome, which is roughly, give or take one in a thousand, I'm just making the math easy here, but among pregnant women, it'll vary from one in 1,500 for a young lady to one in 40 or so for a lady in her early 40s or even higher. So you've got to put it in specifically for her age, but just overall in pregnancy, if you just order this test on everybody who's pregnant where the rest risk is about one in 1,000 and it comes back positive, then they have a 50% chance that their child has Downs. So, but obviously now do that to younger women and that number goes down and do it to older women and that number goes up. And then you said, so, so for example, Down syndrome at age 20, where the 
risk is closer to 1 in 1,500, it would only be about 39% post-test probability. And not all these tests, this don't mean, don't take that to mean that the test you order has that specific result because we've been very generous with 99.9% here. They're not all that good. DeGeorge syndrome occurs in 1 in 4,000. So that gets us a positive test, gets us a 20% risk of a true positive. And then Prater-Willi, you said 1 in 20,000. Well, that gets us to about a 5% risk. And so that that kind of matches up to what the New York Times article was reporting. Yeah, they are really close to what they reported, especially for DeGeorge and Prater-Willi. Yeah, so it's not a secret. All we needed to ever do was do the math and and understand how to interpret tests. And then we, as the physician, should have known that this tests weren't going to be much more accurate than this. This is how we were taught medical school to interpret tests. And this is everything, a CBC, a CT scan, a pathology report, etc. You have to determine the pretest probability for the disease you're thinking about and then use that to interpret the test. It's not enough just to order a test, even these very good tests, without thinking this way when you discuss, particularly when you discuss rare conditions. All right. Well, let's knock off a little bit, almost 1%. What if the test was only 99.0% sensitive and specific? How much would that change things? Well, it changes them quite a bit. I won't go through the whole list again. Uh, My spreadsheet, I can just knock that in there and do that quickly. But, you know, for downs, I said that for overall downs where the pretest probability, let's say, is one in a thousand, with that 99.9% test, it was a 50% post-test probability. But now if you knock it down just to 99% sensitive and specific, that gets you down to just uh, 9%. 9%. A test that's 99% sensitive and specific for a disease that occurs only one in a thousand times, a positive result only has 9% positive predictive value. And then the numbers really drop off, obviously. They drop off by a factor of 10 almost, just by changing that one little bit of, of sensitivity and specificity. Well, that's a huge, de- that's a huge effect for just a, a tiny decrease in the test parameters. So let's just for fun, let's do a, a different disease. How about the ANA, the anti-nuclear antibody test for lupus? The sensitivity of ANA for lupus, I think, is 99% and specificity 86%, which again, sounds very good. And the incidence of lupus among women is 128 cases per 100,000 women. So if I just did an ANA test randomly on a woman in my clinic, let's say that she has some vague symptoms and she said, my family doctor said I should test for this and they forgot to order it. Can you order it? Or something like that. Let's say I ordered the ANA and it came back positive. What would that result mean? And what would her positive predictive value be for lupus? Yeah. So yeah. So if I put those numbers in, 86% sensitive and 99% sensitive and then change that to 128 per 100,000 women, a positive test would give a woman a roughly a 0.9% chance that she actually has lupus. So a less than 1% chance that this patient with a positive ANA has lupus. And, and this is why, again, like our clinical 
job as, as clinicians is to take a history and physical and consider differential diagnosis and order the differential and think about the probabilities of the diseases. So this is why that part is so important. We have all sorts of practitioners who will order an ANA, as you said, for like vague and nonspecific symptoms. Lupus is a great imitator, right? So somebody has Googled WebMD, they're tired, they think they have lupus or the autoimmune disease, right? And they don't really understand how rare lupus is or how much overlap it has symptomatology-wise with every other disease, basically. I mean, in the example you gave, that patient may not even have an elevated risk above baseline. If someone just presents with weird skin and fatigue and thinks she has lupus or something, I don't know that she's at any elevated risk. And so when that test comes back positive, there's over 99% chance that she does not have lupus. But what happens is that she's told and treated for lupus and she joins a lupus Facebook group and all these sorts of things. And, And unfortunately, I see that kind of thing very common nowadays. So we need to counsel patients about what positive results mean, and we need to understand what the pretest probability for any disease is before we do any kind of tests so that we understand what the test results mean. And for these genetic tests in particular that New York Times was talking about, patients need to understand that if a test comes back positive, they all need to have more invasive testing to to confirm it. And if they're not willing to do that invasive testing and, and assume the risks that come with that, and if you're not wanting to terminate the pregnancy based on the results, for example, then in most cases, the test probably shouldn't be performed. Yeah. And we need a bigger lesson for this episode. We need to stop letting industry tell us how to practice medicine because they're selling a product. And I'm not saying that, and I know you're not either, that the only reason to do these tests is for potential termination. Right. Um, But let's be honest, it's the main reason. And when we talk about, because we're not talking about many things that have antenatal interventions, like do they require more testing? Do they require antenatal fetal surgery or something? Like, is there something that we can do that improves the outcomes? And the answer is really no. So then it's, well, peace of mind, just education, things like that, which is great, but the New York Times piece illustrates where people don't actually get that peace of mind. They get more anxiety, worrying that their child has a disease that their child almost certainly does not have, or at least very probably does not have. And then in many cases, they're in this, they're stuck now because they don't want to do the invasive test because it has, say, a CVS has a, say, 1% risk of terminating the pregnancy. So they don't want to do that. And so they just spend the next several months worrying that their child has DeGeorge syndrome, all because someone ordered a test without even asking. And by the way, the person who ordered the test got a kickback from the company that orders it for genetic counseling. So so there are definitely legitimate purposes for these tests. They're wonderful tests, but people should order them knowing what they're about. And they should not be ordering them just to find out the gender. And I really feel strongly about that. There are commercial products. You can go on Amazon. You can buy the same technology for 69 bucks or whatever it is. And you can find out using the same technology, the gender of your child, or you can wait like the rest of the world till 14 weeks or so and 18 weeks maybe and find out that way. But the company wants to sell a very expensive test so that they can find out the gender. So that's deceptive. And you're right. Most of them come back normal. But what do you do when it comes back abnormal? You cause a lot of psychological distress and you cause increased risk to the pregnancy if they do choose to do interventional testing or invasive testing, things like that. Most of them won't. And so you just add cost and psychological stress and a lack of bonding. So I could argue, as we did in the other episode, that we're actually causing more psychological harm because of false positives than we're benefit, than we're preventing psychological harm by allowing a few more weeks of the parent to learn about their child's condition before birth. So let's be thoughtful at least, right? 
Yeah. And the, we also talked about this in the, in that initial episode that when it comes back negative, of course, the negative predictive value is good for those diseases, but there's so many other diseases that it doesn't even touch that it could almost be like this false reassurance in a way, or like being overly confident that, well, your NI, your NIPT came back normal. So everything is good. Right. And 75% of the genetic chromosomal or structural abnormalities with babies are not tested for by that test. Yeah. But you're right. Everybody thinks, just like the pap smear, they think if their pap smear is normal, they don't have uterine cancer, ovarian cancer, vaginal cancer, vulvar cancer, (laughs) a PID, whatever. And yes, definitely in the same way, people get this test back. They laud it on Facebook and Instagram as their baby is genetically normal, chromosomally normal, et cetera. And there's 10,000 different genetic and chromosomal problems, at least, that we know of in babies. This test and even our ultrasound really only tests for about 75% of problems. Babies can still be born with problems despite this test. Well, I think we should wrap up so I can take baby off of his grandpa's hands. So the Thinking About OBGYN website will have links to these articles that we talked about. And our email address is thinkingaboutobgyn at gmail.com. And we'll be back again soon in a couple weeks with something else. Thanks for listening. Find us online at thinkingaboutobgyn.com. Be sure to subscribe. Look for new episodes every two weeks.